I pray that your heart will be refreshed here by being in church and by singing the praises of the Lord Jesus and hearing his word taught. And I, I just felt led this week to say something that I don't often say, but I think maybe I should say more. How important it is that we understand what the Bible is, that we come to the Bible and we study and we seek and we read and we pray over the Bible week after week because it is a divine work. It is something that is inspired by God's spirit and given to us without error, authoritative, revealing God's truth to us in the person and the work of God. It is not just inspirational, it is inspired. Inspirational means something that, that makes us feel good about ourselves, but it may have no truth to it at all. God's word moves our heart, but it moves our heart because it is of God. And something that comes to us of the Lord is always going to change our heart and is always going to move our heart. And it is inspired in its particular words. And its particular words have particular meaning. And those meanings teach us who God is and lead us to him. And it has been preserved faithfully by the work of God's spirit for thousands of years. And we know that it will remain preserved of the Lord until Jesus comes again. Because the words of the Lord will not pass away. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you will encounter God through the Bible. And that God's Holy Spirit would do the work that only He can do through illuminating your heart and helping you understand the Scriptures. And then moving your heart to apply these things and see them be transformative in your life. And so I ask you this morning, where are you? This is sort of the reverse. Sometimes I ask this at the end of the sermon. This morning I'm asking at the beginning of the sermon. Because this morning's passage and sermon is, is deeply important to me. And so I want you to look at your heart first this morning. Are you coming in this morning with a rebellious or a fearful or a, a bitter or a doubtful heart? Perhaps coming in with addiction or hypocrisy or despair or I don't know what you may be coming in the door with this morning. But I want you to understand this morning that the grace of Christ Jesus is available to you freely. But it was not attained freely. What we're going to see here this morning is that the grace of Christ Jesus that is open to you freely by grace was attained by Jesus Christ through great agony of soul and the bitterness of him going to the cross for you and for me. But it makes salvation free and open to us. And if you have been a long-standing Christian and your life is like Psalm chapter 1 when it talks about a, a tree firmly planted by streams of water bearing fruit, that looking again at the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus in that place would stir your faith up again to see the great agony of Christ in what was done to accomplish your salvation and that today you might give thanks and not take for granted what Jesus has done for us. And so we're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Um, we're driving towards Easter and the resurrection. And so Luke 22, 24 through 30 is a very important passage. I'm going to write about it in the newsletter this week. But for the sake of time, we're going to focus particularly on 39 through 46 this morning. So if you would, please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke 22. 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. As with so many of these passages, as we go through the the narrative of Christ going to the cross, they are repeated in the other gospels. And I'm going to be looking at all of those this morning. Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 record uh, this garden of Gethsemane uh, passage or this, this narrative in more depth. For whatever purpose of the Lord, Luke's narrative of this is about half the length of what is recorded in the other Gospels. And so I'm going to be going back and forth between them this morning. But where we are in the ministry of Jesus is after his teaching ministry has been completed and after many miracles have been performed and he has gone through the Last Supper with his disciples, and it is now late at night, and they're going out to a place that is very familiar, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and we have reached the crux of the ministry of Jesus. What is a crux? It is, a, it is an imminent decision point. It's the most dangerous point of any journey. It is the hardest part of the journey. The crux of something is the point where there is no return from where you go. It's the point of final commitment. And usually, when someone is on a great journey like this, you know where the crux is. You know what the bottleneck is going to be, and you're going to have to pass through that. And if you can't get through it, you will not make further progress. And you often prepare yourself for it or steal yourself for it that you might be prepared to pass through that point. But still, you must face the crux and the struggle. And so it has been for Jesus coming up to this point. And so what we're going to see in this passage this morning is two different things working their way out, both of tremendous importance. One is what actually happens with Jesus and, and what occurs here and the theological importance of it. And the other is the great importance to us in the example that Jesus sets and what he teaches us about what is happening during this momentous occasion. Because I believe this passage is one of the most important passages in Scripture. It's one of the crucial passages of Scripture that we must understand. And so he comes out after the Last Supper, and we know from Matthew and Mark that he calls not only all the disciples to follow him, but Peter, James, and John to follow him further into this garden to be closer to him. And then he withdraws about a stone's throw, as Luke says, which is an interesting thing. Think about a rock that's the size of a baseball and how far you can throw that. And that's about how far away Jesus is. But he goes further away from them. But the word where it says that he withdraws from them, has a sense of him being compelled to go further away from them. And I think we all understand this. When we are in anguish, as we're going to see here with Jesus, sometimes we just, we don't want to be around other people. We need to be alone to ourselves to just pour out what is going on in our heart. And that is what is happening with Jesus in this passage. This is a deeply emotional passage. 
And if you miss this, you will miss the entire entirety of what is happening here. And we see it a little bit in Luke, and we're going to see it more in Matthew and Mark. So in Luke, in verse 44, it talks about Jesus being in agony or anguish as he prays. And this speaks to the turmoil of his soul. If you have ever been in anguish over something, you are thinking, God, maybe it's this way, maybe it's that way, and no, no, it's this way, no, it's that way, and, and you, just, you, you don't know what to think, and you keep going back and forth, and the back and forth of it all just tears your soul apart, and you are in anguish. In Matthew, it talks about Jesus being sorrowful unto death. That's not, that's not a phrase you can just pass over. There's something... He's so sorrowful, he would rather die in one way than go on with what is before him. And I think many of us that have any age on you have been at a place like that somewhere in your life where, where what you're facing, you think, this is so, I can't see how this is ever going to work out. And I, I would rather in some way be dead than have to pass through this and deal with this. And in some way, this is how Jesus is feeling at this moment. And Mark, it describes Jesus as being greatly distressed, greatly troubled. And when we go back to Matthew and Mark and Luke about his posture, because our bodies and our souls are united, and what is happening in our soul always affects the posture of our body. And so what do we see with Jesus? It says in Mark that he fell down on the ground. If you have been in great agony like this at some point, you know what it means to just, just be down on the ground and pouring out tears and, and just being a disaster. And in Matthew, it says he fell on his face. And here again in Luke, verse 44, it says that he was sweating profusely like great drops of blood pouring off of him. And it's just sometimes the, the illustrations and the things we have in church are so misguiding. I, I grew up in a church that had the, the picture that I'm sure many of you have seen of the, the very effeminate and composed Jesus kneeling down by the rock with a little glow behind him. And nothing could be further from the biblical truth of what we have here than that picture. That was not what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you need to take that picture and just get it out of your mind and have your understanding of what's happening with Jesus be shaped by the scriptures here. If you had a friend that was going through this level of struggle and turmoil in their soul, you would not leave them. You would, need, you would say, I need to be near this person because I'm very concerned about how deeply agonized they are in their soul. And this is what is happening with Jesus. Perhaps you yourself have been through a similar occasion of hopelessness and anguish and weeping and sadness of soul. And it's important that you see here that part of Jesus's compassion towards us is that he has been through these things in a way similar that he might have compassion on us. And that's a sermon for another day, but you need to see that. But what we're going to focus on this morning is that Jesus, in this great turmoil and anguish of soul, what does he do? He goes to prayer. There are many things that we do when we come to a, a great hardship and crux of our life. And if we are following after the example of Christ, we will go to prayer. And that is where Jesus goes at this point in time. He struggles with God the Father in prayer. And he pours out his heart in a very authentic and passionate way. He doesn't hold things back. It's not a, a contrived situation. There's no fake smiles here. 
And so I would ask you this morning, when you go through the great struggles of life, do you get down on your face before the Lord and pour out your heart to him in prayer? We need to see the pattern of Jesus and understand that we are called to that same pattern in our own lives. But it, it's important for us to see how Jesus prays when he goes. And the lesson here is tremendous. The first thing he says in verse 42 is, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Well, what is he saying? Remove this cup. This is a very Jewish illustration of having to deal with something. And it's, it's the idea of a bitter cup and that you're going to drink it all the way to the bottom, and it's just, it's just going to be hard for you to do this. And it's a cup of wrath, a cup of hardness, and Jesus is becoming in this the sin bearer of the world. I am convinced, along you know, with others, that the agony of the cross, the physical agony of the cross, is actually secondary to Jesus for the agony of being the sin bearer of the world. The, the, the sins and the guilt of all the world being imputed or laid upon Christ. And we're going to continue to talk and work this out here this morning. But we start, of course, by seeing what the Bible has to say about this. And Jesus is struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane with what we see expressed many times in Scripture. And I'm going to read three passages for us. The first is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This talks about the imputation or the counting of sin against one person that another person might go free. And so it is the action of God the Father laying upon the Son who knew no sin, which is something that we cannot grasp, the idea of having a, a perfectly pure conscience, never having been racked by guilt, and then having the truckload of the, the guilt and sin of the world being poured out on you and what that would be like. But for our sake, for our salvation, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In a different formulation of this, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All the way from back in Genesis, we, we see written in the scriptures the idea of the curse of, the, of, of sin being on the world. That there is something that is radically changing and causing evil in the world and that it is being taken and laid on Jesus. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then from Isaiah 53, the foretelling of Christ and the picture of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God from Isaiah 53, 6. The prophet Isaiah writes this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus fully understands this in a way that you and I never can but is given to us in various pictures and formulations in the scripture to help us understand what is going on. But Jesus is facing this squarely. And the doctrinal name given to this is substitutionary atonement. That the Lord Jesus is 
our substitute and the atonement that should have been exacted from us is exacted from him and that he then gives his righteousness to us. So we are pardoned because of his suffering. It is Jesus in his innocence and us in our sinful rebellion and the places being switched that by grace through faith that we might have salvation. And that God through Christ becomes both just or exacting justice, but also the justifier. He is both things at one time, and it is a glorious truth. But the question that we need to struggle with this morning as we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping and and sweating and on his face on the ground in the middle of the night, is this question, I believe. If this is why Jesus came, which we know it is why he came, because he said to his disciples at least three times in the Gospels that, I have come that I might be crucified, buried, and raised again for your salvation. He kept saying he knew what he was doing and he knew where he was going. So why is Jesus trying to escape this right at the moment before it's going to happen? What is going on here? In this prayer that he prays in the garden in Mark chapter 14, he says, Father, all things are possible with God. Which is interesting. It's the same phrase used at his announcement of his birth to Mary. All things are possible with God. And so he's saying here at the end, everything that is possible that can be done can be done by God. So if it is possible, take this bitter cup of death and imputation of sin away from me that I might not have to go through this. But James Edwards writes this, and I think it is important. The most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane, in his decision to submit to the Father's will. Because that's the next part of the prayer. He says, remove this cup from me, but if not, what does he say? Nevertheless, verse 42, not my will, but yours be done. And so it is a prayer of submission Because what we see in this passage, emphasized again and again, is that there is no other way of salvation. There is no other way that we can be pardoned of our sins other than Jesus Christ going to the cross. It is the ultimate passage, I believe, of the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to recognize that the exclusivity of the salvation of Jesus Christ does not come through some elitist group of bishops or ministers that have decided to create a religious system that excludes people that don't do what they want to do. That's what a lot of people see the exclusivity of Christ as being. But it is not that way at all. And I think it's important for us to look at perhaps you know, chemistry or physics or something like that. And how people go to school and they have laws and particular rules. And nobody says that physics or chemistry is exclusive. Why, why do they, they don't say that? Because that's just the way that it is. And if you want to do something related to those fields, you have to understand the way the laws work and you have to adhere to those laws and function within those laws in order for something to happen. Because it's reality. And it's the same reality with God. What I'm telling you is that there is a God. There really is a God. And that he is just. And that he is holy. And that he is righteous. And that he is alive. 
And that if we are to relate to him, because of our sin and our rebellion, something must happen. We cannot relate to him with our sin still in place. The wages of sin is death. And there must be ultimate and perfect justice if we are to enter into God's presence. And this is the way it is. And I can't change this. If I said something to you otherwise, I would be lying to you about the realities of the world. God's moral law cannot be overthrown or wiped away. And so God in his love for us, in his mercy, in his desire to glorify himself, sends Jesus that he might save us from our sins by grace and by mercy. Amen. Amen. Yes. And we see it emphasized three times here. Anytime you see something coming around three times in the Bible, you should pay great attention to it. And in Matthew, Mark, it says that he agonizes for a period of time. And, and granted, this not my will but your be done prayer is, is, is a summary of what he is agonizing over, what appears to be hours of time in the middle of the night. And he comes after a period back to the disciples to, 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 to engage with them, perhaps to gain some encouragement from them. And what, what are they doing? They're sound asleep. He says, get up, get up, pray. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Surely they can see the, the, the tears streaming down his face, the redness of his eyes, the, the condition that he's in, and, and say, yes, yes, we're going we're to pray more. And he goes back and enters into this same prayer again. God, remove this cup if possible, but not my will, but yours be done. And the same thing, three times over, which tells us, if anything, assuring us over and over that there is no other way that we can be saved other than the cross of Christ and him bearing our sins in his own body. And so the conclusion of this is that for love and for mercy and for kindness and for the glory of God, Jesus submits himself to the will of God. He reaches a place at the end of this time where he is ready and he will go do the will of the Lord. And so I want to camp out on this for a period of time because it's really important. And the question is, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? I think many people don't think about this enough, and they should think more about it. The will of God is not a vague hope. It's not God hoping that maybe something will happen in the world. It's not a, even a general plan. That I, you know, I've, got, I've got this thing fairly well worked out, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out this, this basic plan as things go forward. No, the scriptures are over and over abundantly clear that the will of God is precise, it is specific, it is prophetically foretold, and as Dylan read to us last week at the end of the Lord's Supper in Luke twenty-two twenty-two, where Jesus says that it is in fact a determined plan. And so the specific crucifixion of Jesus as recorded in scripture was the will of God. And it's important to grasp that. Like the way that the cross works out and all these narratives that we're reading didn't just happen to work out that way. But that's why we have over and over it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, and the scripture was fulfilled, and the scripture was fulfilled because God had known a long time ago and is working out his purposes that these things might come to pass. But what do we have happening in this passage? What we have happening in this passage is Jesus Christ agonizing over the plan of God. And this is 
we're getting into places where we'll never be able to grasp. First of all, the idea of, of one God, God the Father, God the Son, struggling within the Trinity as to what is happening is, is an incomprehensible thing, but we must look at what we have before us. And we have Jesus struggling with the will of God. It's the second great temptation of Jesus. The first great temptation of Jesus is in the desert with Satan. And this is the second great temptation. And similar to the first temptation of Christ, we have an angel that comes and ministers to him, to his human weakness during his time of greatest struggle, as is mentioned in verse 44 of our passage. And J.C. Ryle writes so beautifully, As God, he had a will in entire harmony with the will of the Father, a will to suffer, to die, to bear our sins, and to provide redemption on the cross. But as man, he had a will which naturally shrank from death and pain, as everything which has breath of life instinctively does. And so what we have before us is a great mystery, something that is an irreconcilable mystery, because we have God working salvation, which is a good and perfect and specific plan. But we have Jesus making a very real and authentic decision. To say that Jesus' decision to rise and go and do God's will is not an authentic decision is blasphemy. Because what you're saying then is this entire encounter at the Garden of Gethsemane is some contrived situation to make something appear to be something that it's not. And that is absolutely not what is happening here. You have Jesus struggling deeply and then he makes a decision, and it is to do the will of the Lord. And so we have mystery here. A mystery is something that we do not understand. It does not mean that it is not true, but it is possible to understand if we had further information about what was going on. But I want to talk briefly about mystery, and take a, a, a silly example, but one that I hope will help you understand a much greater issue. I've got these uh, the little um, Apple earbud things, and at first I thought they were so stupid, and now I'm addicted to the things because they're so helpful. But this little bit that you stick in your ear is a mystery. Why is it a mystery? Because somehow my phone sends a signal that I cannot see to this little thing that has a little bitty battery in it that uses an electrical impulse by the way, electricity, which was not even discovered until about 150 years ago or less, nobody even knew it was there. And, and nobody knew that wireless technology until they discovered that was there. But this little battery sends a little electrical impulse to this little plastic cone in there, and it, it, it just the right way digitally changes a signal into an electrical impulse, which causes this little plastic cone to vibrate, and it makes beautiful piano music play in my ear so that I can focus more when I'm studying. And that is a mystery, okay? What do I mean by that? There's very few people on planet Earth that could actually explain to me all that is happening there in order for this, this music to play in my ear. And if you call me, it'll interrupt that, and it'll change to a tone that sounds exactly like your voice so I know that you're calling me and I can hear your voice and you can hear mine. And it's astonishing. But even if there was some combination of computer scientist and electrical engineer and so on and so forth that could all come together and explain all the details of this to me, 
I would not be able to understand it. You would lose me about two minutes into the conversation because I don't have the capacity to grasp even what you're telling me about what is happening. But what I do know is when I stick it in and turn it on, it plays, and I really enjoy it. And that is what is happening. Even if I don't understand anything about how this is actually happening. And that's an illustration, but it is something that I want to, I hope helps you grasp in some way the higher ways of God. The Bible tells us that God's ways are not our ways and that they are in fact higher than our ways. And it should not surprise us that the ways of God are higher than our ways because he is God and we are his creatures. But what is happening every day is that God is working and you are making real decisions every day and it's everywhere in the Bible from the beginning to the end. And our great and final hope is that the will of our good and merciful and loving and holy God will in fact be accomplished in the world. The secular world does not have this hope. The secular world believes in a foundation of, of evolution. And evolution in its definition, by definition, and it's important that we keep these definitions clear because evolution by definition is the world coming about through random time and chance. And if you believe that the world has come about through random time and chance, you yourself are a product of random time and chance. And there is no plan and there is no God that is guiding anything and there is no ultimate purpose. And if you lay any purpose on it, it's, it's because you have contrived some purpose to lay onto a series of events because you cannot stand in your heart the idea that life has no purpose and no direction and no meaning and that you yourself are only a product of random time and chance. It grates against your soul because you don't want it to be that way. But what happens when you reach this place of sadness and anguish that Jesus is in? Where do people turn in this world when they reach that crux, that wall, and they have nowhere to turn, and they are so low, and they long for someone to speak some comforting word to them, but there is no comforting word because the world is only a cold, empty place of random time and chance. But it's not so for the Christian because the follower of Jesus Christ believes and hopes in the providence of God. Providence is a beautiful word. It's a word that the forefathers of this country used to use all the time with a sense that God was working and that he was accomplishing something. And even though they didn't understand their place and the flow of it, there was a flow and that God was working and he was working out his will. And the great promise related to this comes from Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even in this one little simple verse, we see both us loving God and God working out his purpose. It is two things together. And so in the Bible, when we go back to the mystery of God in these things, he reveals to us as much as is his purpose to reveal to us. And it's important for us to grasp it. I don't think it's very hard for us to grasp that because we walk by faith. What that means is that we don't know what tomorrow holds. And there's a reason for that. We are not like Jesus where we know the future and we know the day of our death. If you knew the day of your death, welcome. Please come on in. So good to have you here with us this morning. If you knew the day of your death, you would not be able to bear it. 
you would not be able to enjoy the days that are before you and all that is happening in your life if you knew all the pain and the hardship and the struggle that is before you. And so it is God's purposes in our life to not tell us all that is before us and that we must walk by faith. And if there is anything that is true of the Christian life, it is that we must walk by faith. If you think that you will ever reach a place in your Christian life where you don't have to believe God for the future and you don't have to trust him for working out his good plans in the future, then you are mistaken about what the Christian life is. But if you reach a place where you don't think that you are making real, meaningful decisions every day that are following after Christ and that those decisions have absolute consequences in your life, you're also mistaken. And so the two are a mystery coexisting at the same time. And this is worth thinking about. I don't know how much you have thought about these things, but it's important to think about these things because these are the issues of life. These things help us dramatically in understanding what is going on in the world. And so in verse 45, Jesus reaches the end of this period. It says in verse 45, he rose from prayer and came to the disciples. Jesus eventually reaches a place in this struggle where he submits fully to the will of God and says, it's time to go to the cross. And he stands up, he raises up, and he goes. And he gathers the disciples, wakes them up, and says, the betrayer is at hand. And he goes and faces him who will take him to this false court and ultimately to the cross. And where the disciples are weak, Jesus is strong. And this is an important part of this passage. Because if Jesus in his great struggle had gone out to the disciples and found Peter awake and strong and said, yes, Jesus, like, let me encourage you in this, we would be tempted to say, look, Jesus drew his strength from Peter. And people would idolize Peter or idolize James or John. But instead, as we see the threefold strength and magnificence of Jesus in his perfect obedience to God's will, we see the absolute weakness of the disciples, and we find ourselves in the same place, that we know that if we were there, we also would be asleep, and we also would be unable to withstand this period of time. And so I want to close with a story to help you understand perhaps a little more about this, this atoning grace of God, the substitutionary atonement of Christ Jesus. There's a man some time back that came uh, to me to, to talk to me and, and tell me about how he had come to salvation, and the guilt that was on his heart for what he had done to, to hurt others in his sin, and how he had came to a place where the Lord Jesus had brought such tremendous conviction of guilt on him that he was in this place of anguish where Jesus is expressing now, not in the same way, but he was on his face, and his, he was just pouring out his heart before the Lord, knowing that he was a sinner and knew the gospel, and he confesses his sins to the Lord. And he knew that for our sake, Jesus had become sin, that he might be, the, I'm sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And this person said something that was so insightful in that moment. He said, you know, it dawned on me how great the weight of my sin was upon me, and how it was crushing me down. And what must it have been like for Jesus Christ to bear this type of guilt. This, is just, this, this guilt was just my own sins crushing me. What would it be like to have all of the guilt 
of all the people that I even knew and all of the sadness of them poured out onto me and how absolutely unbearable that would be. And that is what happened with Jesus on the cross and progressing from the Garden of Gethsemane forward. But then he expressed the great joy of saying, when I confessed my sins to the Lord and expressed my belief in Christ, it was something that I can never explain, that somehow this guilt was lifted off of me and it must have been given to Jesus. And by faith, I believe that that's what happened. And my heart was freed from these things. And what we have been talking about here in theory happened in reality. That the sin and the guilt of my life was transferred to Jesus. And that I am free. And I am forgiven of my sins. And this person went forward to rejoice and to go into a new life. And this is the reality of substitutionary atonement and salvation by grace through faith. That when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, he removes the burden of guilt and sin and death from our heart that we might be free and that we might be saved and that we might have peace with God. And this is cause for rejoicing. Jesus came not for the righteous, but to save sinners. And I press you this morning to put your faith in Jesus Christ if you have never believed in him. That today would be the day that you decide, yes, Lord, I am going to confess my sins to you and I'm going to believe that Jesus is Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for your agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've, we've looked at some of these things. There's so much going on here and it's so worth reading through each one of these passages carefully. And I pray that you would help us with these things. I pray that as we read them, first of all, we would believe them. And as we believe them, that they would become real and dear to us and that we would see the agony of Christ and the great price that was paid for our salvation. And I pray that we would see the two things happening that we've been talking about here this morning. The beautiful, good, providential will of the Lord and the reality of our seeking after Christ Jesus. And Lord, that we would not be undone by this mystery, but that we by faith would be able to accept this mystery. And that instead of it undermining our faith, it would strengthen our faith and that we would have great hope in your purposes in our lives. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you submitted to the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And I pray that it would be true in every one of our lives as we go out from this place this week. That the will of the Lord would be not my will, but yours be done. That we would be authentic with God in prayer. That we would pour out the struggles and the heartaches of our, of our life. But that we would end our prayer with may the will of the Lord be done in my life. And I pray that it would be so all across this congregation. Lord, help us, be with us. We trust in the good providence of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.